When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Podcast. What is up, college lacrosse fans? Episode 162 of the Lax Factor Lacrosse Podcast. Today, we're going to recap all eight first round NCAA lacrosse games. I'm not going to talk about Syracuse until the end because it makes me sad, but alas, I'm not going to rant. I'm not going to go on a any type of crazy campaigns or anything like that. I'm just going to report the news, tell you guys what I think about all these games, and we're going to get into it. Before I do, go to laxfactor.com. You can support us that way. We've got swag, hats, T-shirts, all sorts of crap. Or you can just, the, the easiest way to support us, and the only thing I really ask, like, subscribe, share this with your friends, spread the word, help us grow the podcast. We're trying to get to over 10,000 subscribers, and we're you know about 400 and change short here, but we got work to do. So let's get into it. I'm going to talk about the games in sequence so that I can talk about two games and then I can talk about the matchup for the next round. So I'll bunch them together that way. No no rhyme or reason to the order here. First one we're going to talk about, Drexel and Notre Dame. Drexel, down 7-3 at the half. I figured the Irish would slow roll here to a 14-7 victory, maybe 15-9 if things kind of started clicking a little bit for Drexel. It was apparent Drexel was solid based on the first half. But no way they'd be able to to claw back into it and hold Notre Dame back over the course of the second, uh, over the final two quarters. Another game, we saw a lot of really good goalie play over the weekend. And I'm not talking just good goalie play. I'm talking we saw some in, incredible goalie play over the weekend. This game was no different, except in this case, it was the higher seeds goalie that had to play well or else they would, the higher seed would have lost this game. Both goalies in this game played well in the first half. Ross Blumenthal, he stopped six of Notre Dame's shots versus the seven goals he gave up. Entman, Liam Entman for Notre Dame was crazy. He stopped 13 of Drexel's on-cage chances, uh, and that was the that was where Notre Dame was able to build that first-half margin. That was thanks to Liam Entman. The defense, to a degree, you know, semi-contesting shots, but legitimately this came down to, I was surprised Notre Dame's defense was as porous as they were over the first half, and Entman just played absolutely in, insane lacrosse. Second half, flip it. Entman stopped just four shots in the second half to Blumenthal's nine saves over the second half. Seven of those saves for Blumenthal came in the final quarter as the Dragons clawed back into the game and made it interesting. Drexel tied the game just two and a half minutes into the fourth quarter off a Reed Bowering goal. He had a great showing on the day Reed Bowering did with four goals on the day. Uh, the score remained tied for a while, thanks to uh, uh, Rosenthal standing on his head through that entire fourth quarter. It ended up being Wheaton Jacoboyce that finally broke through a dodge down the, the the left alley, you know, from kind of the left wing. He got underneath, brought it back, and stuck it past Blumenthal, and that gives Notre Dame the the eventual game winner. And then Notre Dame ends up uh, sticking, I think, a, a empty net empty netter on him. Uh, da, 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 Drexel. They held Kavanaugh to just two goals on the day. They played incredible defense, and and his it was, I believe, his lowest output of the season. Although I didn't end up looking that up after I wrote that, so don't quote me on that. But either way, nobody here 
in in lacrosse world, especially not on lacrosse Twitter, thought that Kavanaugh was going to only put up two points in this game against the unseeded team. If he was going to struggle, it was going to come obviously later when they had to face Maryland or something like that, but not so. He struggled on this day, and Drexel did a very good job defensively to tie Notre Dame up early even in the first half. It could have gotten uglier, but Drexel actually played really good defense almost all over the field. They, They got back in transition. They didn't turn the ball over at a crazy clip, which helped not give up transition goals as well. So I thought that, you know, Drexel, they kind of played toe-to-toe with the Irish and across almost every category of play. They, they cleared the ball well. They didn't turn the ball over ridiculously poorly. They got looks. They, they, they won matchups. They got shots. They put those shots on cage, not quite as well as Notre Dame did, but it was pretty damn close. Notre Dame... The, where where the one stat that was off, and I think this ended up being the second key to the game, besides Entman playing crazy and winning the goalie battle in this one, even though he had a rough second half, I think that the the faceoff advantage for Notre Dame, they won 15 uh, faceoffs to Drexel 7. So that ended up being a pretty big advantage to them too. And that between that and Entman saves, that's what wins this game for Notre Dame. It wasn't the vaunted and highly heralded offense. It wasn't Kavanaugh. It ended up being their goalkeeper, Liam Entman, who has been great all year. And that faceoff unit, that two-headed monster of Gallagher and uh, Leonard at the faceoff X. Notre Dame con- uh, consistently controlled possession throughout the game. You know, it, both teams cleared the ball well and Drexel took care of the ball, but it was that, ugh, you know, you win, you get, uh, what is it, eight extra possessions in a game, and it ends up being a two-goal game coming down to the wire, you know, with, with just a, a, a tie game with under two minutes left. Those those extra extra possessions really, really count. But moral of the story here, Drexel proved they belong more than, you know, any of the unseated, any of the other unseated teams, because really, if you think about it, Loyola doesn't count. I don't, I barely count Loyola as an unseated team, partly because even as an unseated team, they had beaten Georgetown already just before this whole tournament started and then Denver lost to to um Georgetown in the in twice towards the end of the year here in the Big East and the both at the, the second regular season meeting and in the tournament. So I had a feeling that Loyola was going to be able to hang with Denver, but in this case here an unseated team, a team that does not is not a regular fixture in the tournament like Loyola has been and that that's a hell of a job by by Drexel. So we will move on now to Vermont and Maryland. Maryland, 17-11 in this one. It was tight through 13 minutes you know, of the first quarter, and then after that, it wasn't as much tight anymore. A key for Vermont was that Tommy Burke needed to win almost all of his face-offs for Vermont to hang, uh, and I was kind of wrong on that because Maryland successfully stalled Burke out, routinely tying him up at the dot, allowing for the wings to get in. And that was where Maryland kind of flipped the script on Tommy Burke, where other teams weren't able to do that. Um, they kind of kept him in control by m- forcing as many 50-50 ground ball chances as they could. And Vermont's wings got absolutely scorched by Maryland as they as Maryland actually won 19 of 28 draws in this game against Vermont. Not normal for, for, for Vermont to ever lose the faceoff battle. You remember even in Syracuse's drubbing of Vermont, Burke absolutely dominated Syracuse. So I expected for Burke to win the Lions share of faceoffs against Maryland as well, but their strategy was great. Burke went 11 of 26 on the day, probably his worst output of the year. And uh, the Maryland unit as a whole mixed with their strategy to force 50-50 ground balls was executed brilliantly. And I was wrong because Vermont made it respectable overall, I think, in this game. And I think they had a pretty good showing despite losing 
almost you know, not all the faceoffs, but a ton of the faceoffs. And in this case too, it, like I said, it was the Maryland Wings. Um, I had a number here I thought that showed that uh, Shockey and company that might be in a different game so I'll skip over that one and I won't try to speculate I'll stick to my notes for once so it wasn't a goalie saving the day this time either it was uh, Thomas McConvey for for Vermont going four of two or four and two four goals two helpers and it was Syracuse transfer JJ Lewandowski going for three goals and an apple Vermont scored goals on a great Maryland team and they looked pretty good granted yeah they lose 17-11 yes Maryland controlled this game you know, from before the end of the first quarter through to the end, and it was never in question. But Vermont kept battling back. They didn't let Maryland continue to spread that margin out. They Maryland would score a few goals. Vermont would score one or two. So it was kind of the slow burn to victory for Maryland in terms of getting their margin. But I thought Vermont looked really good offensively in this game against a very good Maryland defense. So for Maryland, it was the Jared Bernhardt show. Six goals and an assist for the Tawarton finalist. And he's kind of the media darling at this point. So we'll get into how the other Tawarton finalists did as well. And if I forget one in the mix here, I'm sorry. Uh, Kyle Long, he put up three goals in a dish. Another Syracuse transfer, Logan Wisnowskis, two goals and an assist. Maryland had a lot of other guys factor. They're deep after all. Probably, I think one thing Maryland proved here is the way their kind of scoring filled out through their roster. They proved they're as deep in terms of depth of scoring as Duke and UNC are. They can, they can sting you two midlines deep easily, and their, their three attackmen are as good as anybody in the nation. Their defense is good. They've got a solid goalie in McNaney. So... Maryland had a good showing. Uh, a lot of people thought that this proved that Maryland's defense might not be as good as they are. I think what it proved is maybe Vermont's offense, who we already knew was pretty good, might be a little bit better than we thought, especially considering this possession disparity that they were able to overcome to keep this even within six goals the way they did. So I say hats off to Vermont. I It, it was a, a rough a rough go for Tommy Burke on this day, but he'll keep his head head held high, and we'll get to watch him continue to develop at Vermont. I am a big Tommy Burke fan, so good job by Vermont, man. I think that was good. You got into the tournament, and you actually had a, a good showing against an undefeated Maryland team. Yeah, you, They did no worse than anybody in the Big Ten did. So that says a lot about the field this year. So the matchup coming out of this one, Maryland against Notre Dame, and I like Maryland. Notre Dame got tested and, and proved that, hey, they can play, but Drexel gave Maryland a good look at how to disrupt Kavanaugh. They gave Maryland uh, uh, a good look at, tried, at you know kind of trying how to control this offense overall, how to attack this defense successfully because let's be honest here Maryland's got a lot more offensive weapons than Drexel did against Notre Dame so to see the the success that Drexel had offensively against Notre Dame and then more importantly defensively I think that gives Maryland a really good blueprint for how to attack Notre Dame and I think that that probably based on the looks that probably Maryland's going to benefit a little bit more from the tape and, and being able to plan a strategy around their opponent because Drexel had a lot of success where some other teams didn't have anywhere near that success against Notre Dame. So I, I like Maryland. I think it'll be a close game and don't, I wouldn't be surprised if Notre Dame comes out and kicks the shit out of Maryland by five, but more than likely, I think Maryland wins a one to four goal game or so against the Irish, depending on how things roll. Next one. And this was a good one. This might've been probably was the best game of the entire weekend. Uh, it came down to a last second save for Loyola goalie, Sam Schaefer, who struggled at times during the year, even at one point getting benched. He actually didn't start senior day because he was struggling, but he, he earns a starting uh, rollback and he ends up making the game saving save. Schaefer stuffed Simmons with just four seconds on the clock in a frantic finish to a great game. 
Loyola, they jump out to a 9-4 lead after 30 minutes of play. Things were not going Denver's way, and that slow start ended up costing Denver this game. And, and no surprise, though. Denver, they battled back in the second half, made things as interesting as you can without actually ever getting back into it fully again. Loyola answered the bell every time Denver threatened. Aiden Olmstead helped get Loyola the, the Loyola the early lead thanks to a five-goal, one-assist outing out of their stud. Uh, four of those goals came in the first half, but his most important goal was the eventual game winner late in the fourth, a goal that extended Loyola's lead to 14-12. to that ends up being the game winner. Hannah would get one more back for Denver just 19 seconds after Olmstead scored. Hannah got one back and got it right back to 14 to 13. And that set up the game winning save for Schaefer. Hannah and Jackson Morrill paced Denver. They each had three goals. I think Morrill had three goals and, and an assist, possibly, maybe even three and two. Can't remember. TD Erlen, he wins 17 and 19 draws for Denver, helping, you know, kind of they're, they're helping with their surge over the course of the second half, but Stathakis struggled a bit. So Stathakis kind of dragged that overall win percentage down for Denver, and that kind of ended up being the first half push that Loyola needed in terms of, hey, we may not get a whole lot of possessions in this game because that two-headed monster is, you know, Bailey Savio's a capable face-off man, but he wasn't having the season that Stathak, both Stathakis and Erlen were having up to that point. And actually, if anything, uh, maybe Savio and Erlen were about level and Stathakis was the better faceoff guy out of the bunch, statistically speaking, coming into this game. So Stathakis struggling a little bit, that helped Loyola quite a bit in terms of keeping the possessions more fair, and that ends up factoring heavily. Denver won 10 of 15 faceoffs over the first half as Loyola jumped out to an early lead. Denver won 13 of 15 over the second half as they clawed back into the game, and Erlen took the bulk of those draws after that. So it's a good way for Erlen to end his career. In the end, it's not enough for Denver. Schaefer makes a crazy save. I heard a lot of people chirping the save. What you have to realize with goalies is if a player hits a goalie in the chest, so be it. It's that player's bad for doing it, or it's a mix of that player's bad for doing it and the goalie being in good position. Being in the right spot to face that shot is half of the ball game. So, I, I mean, it wasn't like it hit him square in the chest. It kind of hit him up on the shoulder. I think it was like in here somewhere or whatever. Being in a position like that on a one-on-one -on -one where a guy is streaking totally across the face of the crease. Not bad. I mean, yeah, he faked high and put it high, but how many goalies will take that fake and then automatically start to go low? He stood his ground. He stayed in good position. He made a save. I, I can't say enough good things about it. If you want to chirp the save, hey, man, it's America. You can, but I think it's a little bit, being a little bit overly critical. It's like, you know, comparing two hot girls and saying that, hey, you know, this one's better than that one when both of them are totally beautiful and should be happy and, you know, all that crap. Anyway, that's a weird, weird uh, thing to relate here. Uh, the next game we want to talk about, High Point and Duke. High Point, they kept things reasonable, but never really threatened in this one. We saw a lot of that. A lot of, hey, here's they, the, the, the higher seed won by a margin, but the lower seed kept things reasonable. That's kind of the name of the game here once you get to the tournament, especially in a case where High Point got absolutely destroyed by Duke in their first meeting this year. It was Michael Sauer's world, and High Point was just happy to be alive and still playing lacrosse. Sowers finished the game with eight points off four goals and four apples. The Princeton transfer scored. Uh, he factored in eight of Duke's first ten. Uh, I, I just totally butchered that entire sentence. The Princeton transfer factored in eight of Duke's 10 first half goals and then allowed his teammates to finish high point off in the second half. Our first glimpse of Sowers in the postseason 
did not disappoint at all. And he came out hot, eight points in the first half. At that point, I was like, holy crap, is this kid going to have a 10 or 12-point game? I was kind of actually pleased to see him personally take his foot off the gas once Duke had a comfortable lead and allow his teammates to get into it as well. <coughs> and it wasn't an allowed. I mean, it's just like, hey, you got your you got your cheddar. You now know what you can do. You're now feeling pretty good. Now let's let these other guys get some playoff flow as well. Worked out great for Duke overall. Um, after that first round, knowing the the tournament, after this first round here overall, knowing the tournament matters, right now advantage Sowers. We're going to talk about some other guys that played as well that did well and probably made some good cases for their at least uh, said, hey, we do belong as one of the top five finalists. But I think Sowers now has the edge in this one a little bit over the other guys because eight points is more than what everybody else had here. Sean Lowry had three goals and ACC freshman of the year. Brennan O'Neill went for two goals and an apple for Duke and Asher Nolting. He did all he could do one goal and three helpers for high point. Um, but you know, in the end, Duke is Duke and Duke won this game in advance. Now Duke is going to face Loyola in the next round and Duke's going to win this. I think too talented. They check all of the same boxes that Loyola does just a bit more emphatically in all cases. You know, both teams are good defensively. Duke's got the bigger defensive stars. You could argue, McNulty uh, for Loyola at LSM and uh, uh, JT Giles Harris for Duke. You can make the argument they're pretty, pretty even because I'd say McNulty's the best long pole in the country overall, and I'd say JT Giles Harris overall is probably the best pole. Close defender, both veteran guys and everything like that. But I mean, I'd, I'd still take probably take JT overall over McNulty. Um, Duke sports a superior goalie overall. Their defense is, is Duke sports a better goalie than both. Um, Loyola and then Denver. Duke's defense is better than both Loyola's and Denver's overall, although I really like Loyola's defense. Uh, and then overall, you know, probably Duke's short stick D mids, very underrated short stick D mid, Terry Lindsay for Duke. I think he's number 11 for Duke. Yeah, he's really solid. One of the, I think one of the best short stick D mids in the country. Uh, Duke is better in goal, better at attack, better at midfield. Loyola's, I think, is good enough to keep things chill and not get blown out again, but I think we're probably going to see a similar game to the way this high point game went down. I think that Loyola may keep it a little bit closer early on. I think Duke will eventually wear them down and end up winning by anywhere from two to five or six goals legitimately. And then I wouldn't be surprised just based on matchups if Duke just came out and kicked, you know, shit kicked them all over the field. But I, I doubt it. I think Loyola's going to show well. I think Loyola's riding a nice wave right here right now. They've play, they've been battle tested as much as any other team that's unseated that's been in the tournament. So I like Duke to win it, but I think that it, it could be a very close game. Either way, it's going to be a solid game. Once you get to the quarterfinals round, everybody's solid. You know, every team is going to be really good and every team has a chance to win, win the game. So I'm not, there's no hot takes out of me here. While I do think that obviously these higher seeded teams are going to win because by design, that's the way it's supposed to work. Anything could happen in any of these games. All right, next up. Monmouth and UNC. UNC's first playoff game, home playoff game since 2014. I thought Monmouth played tough over the course of the first half. They only gave up seven goals to the heels. And when I I actually was uh, recording a lacrosse game uh, on Saturday, so I, I didn't. I only watched the second half of this. So when I got home and saw that it was a uh, what was it seven three. I think, or something like that at the end of the fir uh, first half. I was like, whoa, you know, like Monmouth is playing some defense. They're limiting North Carolina quite a bit. Noah Lodes, nine first half saves really helped in that. 
over those first two quarters. He only stopped four shots, giving up nine. Or uh, yeah, he only stopped four shots, giving up nine goals in the second half. But considering the overall talent discrepancy, he should feel really good about his uh, first half uh, save totals and kind of helping keep Monmouth in this game overall. Problem for Monmouth was they couldn't figure out Krieg. Krieg encaged a freshman keeper for UNC. He stopped 15 shots on the day, gave up only two goals. That's pretty damn good. Freshman played like a veteran. 15 saves, which means he initiated, or wait, no, 15 saves, which means he initiated a lot of clears, and then he had zero turnovers, which means as a freshman, he took care of the ball, helped lead that clearing unit and uh, that defensive unit in the clearing situations, and that's a very good sign for UNC that in his first playoff action, their freshman goalie plays played that well. For UNC, all the usual suspects got points. Gray, 4-2. Will Perry, 1-5. Kelly, 2-1. Lots of, you know, they filled it out right down the roster there. UNC won faceoffs. They cleared the ball successfully 31 of, uh, 30 or 31 times. So all good things for UNC. They look great, which you would expect for a the, the number one seed against the, you know, pretty much the 16 seed. Score didn't scream massacre. You know, 16-4, that doesn't scream like, oh, you got absolutely massacred. And I'd credit the Monmouth defense and goalie, but it was a beatdown nonetheless when you start digging into the box score a little bit. It was really just a, a respectable slow roll to, to getting beat 16-4. You know, there's nothing else to say about it out there. Nothing for Monmouth to be ashamed of, though. They made the tournament, and I felt like they played a very solid game. I, a lot of times you see 16-4, and you think, ah, maybe that other team took their foot off the gas a little bit. UNC is not a team that takes their foot off the gas. So this was a, a legitimate 16-4 game, and Monmouth you know, kind of proved that, hey, yeah, a lot of people don't like the, these automatic qualifiers because conferences that might not be as good end up getting teams in. But I felt like Monmouth had a good showing. I didn't feel like it was one of those ugly first-round games where you know a team just gets shit-canned. Other game, Lehigh and Rutgers. First quarter, this looked like it was going to be tight. Lehigh struck. Rutgers saw that score and raised Lehigh a goal, only to have Lehigh call. It was two up at the end of the first quarter. I thought we were going to be in for probably what I what I presumed this was going to be one of the best games of the weekend. Over the first 15 minutes, the box score was tight in all areas, just about, ex- uh, except one, face-offs. As expected, Sisselberger won 15 of 19 overall. He won 8 of 9 over the first half and took all five draws in the first quarter. So that's where, hey, this game's not too bad at the end of the first quarter, and we're tied up here. But uh, that didn't, that didn't, that was a big difference overall. Uh, the only issue is Lehigh didn't turn those faceoffs into points. They won a lot of faceoffs. They got a lot of the first possessions off each faceoff, and then they would, you know, not turn that into a goal. And then it would all go down the other way, and Rutgers would often turn that into a goal. I think overall, Rutgers was simply the better team. You know, I heard someone in the College Across discussion group on Facebook say that Lehigh wins that game more often than not, and I think that's dead wrong. I think overall, Rutgers was better in every way, talent-wise better, overall better at every position, um, other than Fogo. Fogo was the only position I think that you could say Lehigh was clearly better than Rutgers at. I think everywhere else, Rutgers won that battle. Uh, and they they controlled and won that game overall. And, uh, you know, what are you going to do? You know, if James Spence didn't match former teammate Colin Kirst with 17 saves on the day, Rutgers would have shit-canned him. I mean, Rutgers, if, if, if Spence didn't stand on his head, especially over the course of that second half, he played really well all game long. This was probably the game where both goalies had an incredible outing. If Spence didn't do that and hang tight with his former te- teammate in Kirst, 
because uh, Kirst had 17 saves as well uh, in cage for Rutgers. If Spence didn't do that, it means what? Spence has a respectable, um, you know, 14 saves on the day. And that's uh, jumps the score up to 15, five, maybe 15, four, because, you know, sometimes you score a goal, you're going to, it's going to go two ways. So I think that's one of the big problems here. Kirst was the better keeper. He gave up fewer goals. Charlambides, Mullins and Kirst were superior offensively. And the Rutgers defense forced Lehigh into 10 of their 14 turnovers overall. So I just, I think despite all of this, the game did feel a little bit closer than that uh, because it was clean. Both teams cleared the ball well. They got up and down the field. The goalie play on both sides was spectacular, and they both got lots of looks overall. One team simply put more in the back of the net than the other, and it was Rutgers. I don't see how you could have watched that game and thought, oh, man, Lehigh would win this more often than not. I mean, I, I watched it and thought, man, Rutgers would win this game more often than not, and not only that, Rutgers might win this game more often than not by a margin because if you're requiring, if you get beat 12-5 and your goalie made 17 saves, you know, you didn't, you, that's not a situation in which you're going to say, oh, our goalie's going to make 17 saves every game. Colin Kirst made a lot of saves in almost every game that he played all year long. I don't know about Spence, how he did. I mean, I know Spence is a solid goalie and he proved it, but either way, UNC, they're going to face Rutgers here in the next round. I think UNC is going to take this. These two teams, they match up actually pretty well as you kind of compare all of their units. For Rutgers to win, Kirst is going to have to have at least 17 saves in cage again, I believe. He's capable of getting hot and doing that. So I'm not saying Rutgers doesn't have a chance. They absolutely do. They can score. They can play solid defense. And if their goalie gets hot, which he's proven he, he, he's kind of been hot all year long, uh, you know, that's, that's great. I, I know a lot of the talking heads are talking about Kirst as maybe, you know, the best goalie in the country. But uh, UNC, they're a, a rebel force, unstoppable rebel force. They're just going to keep coming at you and in a manner similar to what Maryland has done to Rutgers. I think that, that UNC is going to win this game and they will best Rutgers. But for all the Rutgers fans, don't boo me or anything like that. I believe that Rutgers could win this game and I'd be happy to see Rutgers win this game. Not that I want UNC to lose. I just want to see a good game in the end. And as long as it's a good game, I'll be happy. But, you know, I, I do think that UNC is going to pull it out. Bryant and Virginia. Another solid performance from an unseeded team in this one. Bryant hung tough. UVA led this game through the first half and into the third, but Bryant hung tight enough that they were able to surge in the third, and they actually held a lead for a touch, uh, which was pretty surprising, Mar especially it was surprising considering how the game started. Mark O'Rourke uh, gave Bryant the lead with eight minutes left in the third, and Logan McGovern extended that lead to two goals, 10-8, to eight, about three minutes later. Bryant held on to a one-goal lead going into the fourth, but four goals out of UVA to start that fourth quarter. That was part of a five-goal run that spanned the end of the third quarter into the first four goals of the fourth. That put the game away. Bryant ended up getting a couple of back, but you know it was already over by then. Connor Schellenberger and Matt Moore each went for two goals and an assist. Ian Laviano went two and one. I think I'm wrong there. I think didn't Schellenberger wasn't he two and three? I think him and uh, Matt Moore were both two and three. Laviano was two and one. Logan McGovern three and one for Bryant in the loss. This was another game where the seeded team's goalie saved the day. And I kept being like, I watched all these games, but like I said, I was sick uh, the second day when I think a lot of these were going on. And I'm talking, I was st stupid sick. Like felt like an alien was going to pop out of my gut sick. Uh, I believe it was probably a norovirus. We got a norovirus going around here in my area. So. Uh, it was ended up being Alex Road for Virginia uh, that had to make 18 stops on this day. He played out of his mind, and they needed that because Petey LaSala, un unlike him, struggled allowing Bryant an edge in the draws. If Road doesn't play like a vet that's already got a national championship under his belt, 
curtains for the Cavs. Bryant would have won this game. They won a way more draws than I thought they were going to win, uh, and their goalie saved them. Their goalie, who through his career has been up and down, has proven this year, I think, that he's he's really solid and he can win you games if he needs to, uh, which kind of, I'd say he, to a degree, won Virginia this game by standing on his head. All right. Here's the one that I didn't want to talk about, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. Syracuse and Georgetown, an embarrassment for the Orange. And I don't say this to pile on. Um, I'm glad, by the way, that I got sick and that I didn't do this show on Sunday, Monday, or even maybe Tuesday, because I think I would have been salty. I think I would have maybe said some dumb shit that I regretted, you know, potentially. So I'm glad that didn't happen. Uh, So I don't say this to pile on. As I said, the embarrassing part of it is that, you know, I know the Cuse kids feel the same way. This isn't supposed to happen to a Syracuse team. I think this is the first class of departing Cuse players that never tasted the quarterfinals, which is surprising, which I don't think that's right because didn't no, they lost to Loyola. I think what in the first round of the year they lost to Loyola or did they lose to Loyola in the quarterfinals that year? I can't remember. Maybe it's the first class that never made a Final Four. There was some stat that went around it. Now I'm going to sound like an idiot here. It's my favorite team, so I should probably know this shit. Um, three and two Georgetown after the three to two Georgetown after the first quarter, and I'm like, ah, this isn't too bad. This isn't too bad at all. I was sipping on beers, and my sickness hadn't kicked in yet. Here's my day Saturday. I shot a lacrosse game and spent too much time in the sun. Uh, at 11 o'clock in the morning, came home, started watching lacrosse all day. Before I started watching lacrosse, I mowed my yard quick, real quick. I ran around the front yard, mowed it once I realized the UNC game was over. I did not hydrate properly all day. I ate chicken wings and pizza and way too much of them. Uh, I might add also in that case there, I ate some salsa and chips. And then once I realized I wasn't going out to watch the game, my wife was a little bit sick and everything like that. Then I proceeded to drink five 16 ounce fiddlehead IPAs. So I did all of the worst things I possibly could have done to my body leading into uh, getting a virus, getting like some, a stomach bug later that night. And it literally hit me about an hour after this Georgetown Cuse game uh, uh, ended, ended. So anyway, 3-2 at the end of the first quarter. I'm feeling good. I'm sipping on fiddleheads. I got my son down the ga- downstairs watching the game with me. And then second quarter, it was not okay. It was chaos and sadness across the second quarter because you just knew that at that point, no matter what hope you had, that Syracuse might have some of that magic. You just felt like this was not the season where we showed any Syracuse magic except against Virginia. So, yeah, 8-2. It went like 3-2, 4-2, 5-2, 6-2, 7-2, 8-2. And then I'm like, ah, shit, the wheels came off. Syracuse did get back in it, you know, two goals before the end of the half, 8-4 at the half. yes. From here, I'm thinking Desco can adjust. He's done it before. We can come out with some tweaks to the defense, and we can chip back in. Because at that point, Syracuse was kind of playing on the island. They weren't doing terrible with the matchups, except over that stretch when Notre Dame extended the lead. But nope, no adjustments. Or if they did make adjustments, they the adjustments made things worse. The lead was extended to 13-4 to before Syracuse scored again, and then I got really angry. I finished watching the game to the end, although I paid less attention and I actually started cutting up highlights. I, I had the game on on the big screen uh, in here. It's 106 inches, so I can kind of watch it from my desk. So when I'd hear a goal was scored, I'd peep out and say, oh, Notre Dame scored again. Yay. And uh, that was it. So like those last 13-4 was when I kind of came into the office and started cutting up highlights for this show. It was brutal. 
Uh, Caraway and, and Declan McDermott, they feasted five goals each. Dylan Hess, four goals. Colgate transfer, Nikki Pekovich. He goes two and two. He was very familiar with Syracuse over the years. For Cuse, Tromboli, he had a solid end to his career. Three goals, good for him. I always dug the kid. He's one of my favorite Cuse midfielders. Even the faceoff battle was split. So the Cuse guys, they handled their business at the faceoff dot. I think it was split 14 of 28. Each team won 14 faceoffs. Uh, so, I mean, this was a case where the Syracuse defense was just not very good. And that ended up being the problem. We all, all of us knew we had defensive problems coming into the season. We were simply hoping that between our face-off success from the previous year and the offensive success from the previous year, it would be enough to overcome it. It wasn't like we didn't have talent at the defensive end of the field, but it ended up being we we didn't have enough talent at the defensive end of the field. And I put a lot of this on our short stick D mids. If you weren't dearth, you pretty much stunk. Um, and I don't like naming names and pointing it out. You guys know the guys I've been critical of. There's one short stick D mid who happened to be around a lot of the bad things as they would happen. And he wouldn't necessarily be the guy that gave up the goal. But if you watch the full play transpire, this D mid was being attacked early and often by Notre Dame with a lot of success on, on beating this mid to the cage, bumping the ball behind, and then getting feeds. And I think that a big reason Syracuse ended up being so bad off ball was because if your D mids are getting scorched and losing their matchups to the other the other midfielders, that's going to open things up for attackmen, the ball to get banged back to X to a guy like Kavanaugh where he's now going to pick you apart. So if your D mids are getting beat, it's going to open you up to, to to getting beat by feeds, and that is exactly what we saw happen all year. Syracuse played really badly against teams that did a great job sharing the ball. More importantly, Syracuse did really badly against teams that, that had midfielders that could beat their short stick D mids, which was pretty much everyone that they played. Duke was the exception where I was surprised Syracuse actually played pretty well against Duke. Maybe Duke's defensive midfielder – or maybe Duke's midfield didn't play well against Syracuse. Who knows? But in the end – this was a case of the Syracuse de defense being terrible. They allowed the Hoyas to absolutely pepper Porter, who actually didn't play that bad. 15 saves, considering that he got absolutely shellacked in cage. A lot of people dumped on Porter this year, and I don't think that was fair either. I think that if you're going to dump on anyone, dump on Desco and Leland Rogers first. They're the ones that could not figure out how to get this defense at times to even look anywhere near respectable. And I make the argument that if you can play a team like Duke, defensively as well as they did if you can play Virginia defensively almost to perfection twice granted the faceoff dot played a huge role in that why then do you turn around and just get the shit kicked out of you by UNC and Notre Dame and Army you know and I think that the problem was the defense I think the problem was defensive scheming and I think the big problem was the adjustments weren't there in past years the adjustments were there Cuse often would get a slow start defensively only to lock things down over the second or third quarters and they would get back in these games and not more often than not win them. Uh, in this case, Desco looked helpless. You see, you see the memes. The, the camera just kept going to Desco after just Notre Dame kept piling it on, and Desco legitimately looked helpless. He did. He didn't have an answer. You didn't see any fire out of him. He just looked confused, angry very uncharacteristic of him, and he kind of looked like that all year. Partly because it's probably tough not having the the quality and roster that you've had over the course of your career, but whose fault is that? You know, we've lost so many recruits. You look at guys like Logan Wisnowskis tearing it up at Maryland. You look at a guy like J.J. Lewandowski who ends up going to Vermont. I mean, how can you not keep J.J. Lewandowski happy? The kid, now he's playing really solid for Vermont. I mean, we could have used a dude like that. Hell, we could have used a dude like that on attack. So 
uh, I don't like it. You know, I, 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 I think that a lot of team player people were dumping on the team saying they, they lacked motivation. They lacked heart. They gave up at the end. I don't, I don't think that's true. I don't put this on the team. I put this on the coaching staff. Am I, and this is not my opening and, and my, uh, officially joining the, the bluebirds and the fire desco, uh, group. Certainly positives could come out of Desco deciding to step down and retire. But just as of yesterday, Joey Spelina, uh, our coveted recruit who just had 13 assists against forgetting who he had 13 assists against, but he just set a Suffolk County record for 13 assists in a game. He was 0 and 13, 13 apples, no goals. That's pretty crazy. Um, he just came out in support of Desco saying he's looking forward uh, to playing for Desco when he ends up at Syracuse. So the current deuce deuce for Mount Sinai future deuce deuce for Syracuse. He put out a, a vote of support for Desco and here is the kicker. Everybody who's calling for Desco's head, you have to understand that there are a lot of scenarios where if a head coach, especially if a head coach gets fired and it, it maybe looks a little bit ugly, you risk losing your recruits. And right now, it might be what's best for Syracuse in the long run, getting some new blood in now, simply because it's we're going to have to have an adjustment period after that. So it's like, pull the Band-Aid off, let's move on. Hopkins did it, UVA did it, and look what UVA is doing right now. So our biggest rivals got rid of their coaches that they that hadn't been winning and hadn't been keeping the program on the track that the alumni and fans wanted them to be on and Hopkins they just did it so now we'll see how that works for them next year and the year after didn't look great for him this year but Hopkins was in a was in bad shape in terms of their roster quality coming into the season and then Joey Epstein just not looking like himself until closer to the end of the season didn't help either so I think Hopkins will indeed bounce back and be a force in the Big Ten next year and then look what it did for UVA. They get rid of a legend in Starja, and they win a national. They're the current national champion at this point and still looking really good. So what's to come of Desco? I don't know. I'm still not on the fire Desco camp uh, Will is there because there's positives to take from both sides of it. If Desco stays and we can keep all these current recruits and nobody walks away after the nightmare of a season that we had this year with the Chase Scanlon crap and the COVID crap and the getting shit kicked and shit canned by a bunch of teams here, if we can keep our our quality recruiting classes, not next year but the year after, uh, and keep all these guys coming in with Desco, well, giddy up. But Desco is one of the older coaches in in college across already. Does he have six more years to get those you know in him to get those kids through their career? So it's one of those deals where, ideally. If Syracuse could keep that recruiting class, more importantly, if they could keep uh, uh, their top two recruits, uh, Spelina and the other kid, I can't remember who he is now off the top of my head. If they can keep those guys and get rid of Desco, sadly, that's probably the best case scenario for Syracuse. But if they can't, then, hey, man, I'd almost rather see Desco hang, get these kids in, maybe step away after. Maybe Desco could still win another national championship. I, I don't know. So I'm not going to join the Fire Desco crew. Secretly, I have had some conversations with people that might indicate that I was on that on that camp, but I, I'm not really. I, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting to see what happens here, and uh, I just don't see Syracuse firing him. I mean, it was a weird season. He can't really control Scanlon, even though Scanlon is his problem as the head coach. He didn't really have control over that suspension, even though he said that he did. There was Title IX involved in that, and that really tied the hands of the school. I think that considering Title IX, they did really the only thing they could have done in this case, case, which was suspend him, but not let him rejoin the team. So I don't know. It's ugly, and it makes me sad, but alas, 
Cuse is done. I'm going to stop talking about him now. And we're going to talk about Georgetown and Virginia here in the next round. Could be a dogfight. Should be a dogfight. I like UVA for one simple reason. Just like LaSala is at his best after getting two violations and having to take a draw under the threat of a penalty, should he falter again, he is going to bounce back with their season on the line against Georgetown. He is going to be an animal against the Hoyas, and UVA is going to win in a close one, partly because of Petey fucking LaSala, baby. And uh, right now, I am rooting for the ACC. The weird thing is, I like Maryland. I've watched a ton of Maryland games this year, too. So I'm I'm now just sitting here like I'm just a fan of these games and these matchups from here on out. So I don't really care who wins in the end, because if it's Syracuse, fuck everybody at that point uh, in terms of who I really want to win. So I'm just hoping to see good games go out and, and all this crap. I still like my bracket. I still think my bracket holds up. So I'm going to stand by that. I'm going to stand by these predictions. I think UVA is going to beat Georgetown. I still think we may see three ACC teams in the final four mixed in with Maryland. Notre Dame may be the only one not to falter, but there's still a world in which we could see four ACC teams in the final four, which would be absolutely bonkers. It would be the ACC tournament that we didn't end up getting. So that would be awesome. So, all right. I've rambled for what I'm sure was a pretty long time here at this stage. So I am back in the land of the living. I feel better. Uh, I had a nasty stomach bug. I watched lacrosse from bed all day on Sunday, feeling like total hot trash. Um, so that's it. I'm going to get the hell out of here. I'm going to be back, and I will probably do the show on Monday because I think all the you know the games are between Saturday and Sunday. There's only four of them, so there's no sense in uh, uh, doing a show for each one of those. So I'll end up doing the big show on Monday. Probably I'm not going to do a live stream on Saturday. We're getting ready to go on vacation. So uh, my our finals, the show that I'm going to have to do for the finals is going to be from Florida. So that'll be dope. Uh, I'm going to do it from the condo. Or I forget, are we renting a condo or are we renting a house? I can't remember what we're doing. So wherever I do it, it'll be on location while I'm on vacation. Um, so that is it as always. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. Thank you for tolerating me dis- disappearing as I felt like I had an alien about ready to rupture my abdominal region. And uh, that is it. Hoost is out. I'll be back Monday with the recap show for this weekend's D1 games. And, and, and Monday we'll talk about more games. I'll talk about the four D1 games and then we'll get into the other tournaments as well. Congrats to NASA on winning a national title over the weekend. I think they beat Hartford. Uh, apparently everyone said that game was better than every game played across all divisions over the weekend. So congrats to NASA winning the uh, NJCAA national championship. That's it. Hoost is out. <laughs>